Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. Please follow along as I read. And this is the testimony of John, that is, John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray once more together. Our Father, we believe your word to be inspired by your Holy Spirit. We believe that we have before us nothing other than the revelation of God. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us to understand your word and that you would come and help us to, to embrace all that is revealed here through the testimony of your Holy Spirit, John the Apostle, and of John the Baptist. Hold the Lamb of God before us now who takes away the sin of the world. May each one see him clearly, fully revealed through your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. What do you think is the greatest problem facing humanity? Someone asked you that. What is the greatest problem facing the human race? Well, there might be a lot of opinions offered. The, the threat of nuclear war, the rise of nationalism perhaps, various forms of radicalism in the world today. You might think maybe it's the, the growing lack of trust in public figures and all the terrible effects that has on society. You might say it's the significant moral decay in our world today. You might take a different route and say, no, it's really just diseases like cancer, for example. Could be the growing suicide crisis. These are all significant problems facing the human race. And yet none of them even come close to the greatest problem that truly is facing humanity. The greatest problem facing humanity is found at the crossroads of two great truths, and they are these. 
that God is holy and that we are not. This is the great issue, that God is holy, that he demands holiness, and we have no holiness to give. God is holy and we are not. And what can we do? My friend, what will you do about the fact that God is holy and you are not? Do you have a plan? Have you found a solution to the problem? God is holy and he demands holiness. You and I are not holy. We have no holiness to give. But whether, whether you and I recognize it or not, we desperately need a solution to the problem. And I'm so thankful that our passage today will speak directly into this problem. John the Apostle, through John the Baptist, will tell us about a solution. But each one of us has a responsibility. There is an issue, a question that we will have to answer today. Will we this morning listen to their witness? And will we embrace the provision that is offered My friends, I urge you to listen carefully to their witness because everything for you and me depends on our response because God is holy and we are not and we need, so desperately need, a solution. So let's open up these verses together. First thing we want to consider is the testimony of John the Baptist asking first or considering first who John was not. Secondly, who John is And then we want to look at the content of his testimony, his message to us. So first, consider with me in these verses who John was not. Now this passage may appear somewhat uh, peculiar to us, these questions that are addressed to John the Baptist. Uh, They may not have been the sort of questions we would ask. One thing we have to appreciate is that in John's day, uh, uh, the, the Jewish context was rife with something called messianic expectation. There had been all these promises and prophecies in the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, uh, uh, to any great degree, you'll pick that up. There's all this forward-looking material in there, prophecies that are foretold, and um, they're, they're anticipating this coming age and this coming figure in particular who will bring about the redemptive purposes of God. And in, in John's day, Jesus' day, lots of people are asking questions about whether or not the Christ has come and and whether or not the new age has come that the Old Testament foretold of. And that is the context in which some of these questions come to John the Baptist. So first of all, let's consider who John says he was not. First of all, obviously, he was not the Christ, looking on at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed I am not the Christ. John says, I'm not the Christ. Don't get that confused. And this point is actually emphasized again and again in the early chapters of John's gospel. We saw this in John 1 and verse 8. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Later on in John 3, verses 28 through 30, John gives uh, more witness to this. He says, verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ 
but I have been sent before him. And then he says, uh, uh, I'm not the bridegroom, I'm a friend of the bridegroom. I stand beside the groom, but the groom is the one who has the bride. Jesus, he's the bridegroom. He must increase, I must decrease. John is obsessed with getting across the point that he is not the Christ, but rather bears witness to him. He says again and again, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the light. I'm not the bridegroom. Don't get that confused. He is fixated on establishing this point. And we may ask, why is he so intent? Why does he feel the need again and again to establish this point that he is not the Messiah, that he is not the Christ? Well, first of all, it says something about uh, the messianic expectation of Jesus' day, of John's day. People were asking questions. Has the Christ come? Unprecedented things are taking place. And, and are, are you? Are you, John? Are you the Christ that we've been looking for? That could be one reason why John has to make this point again and again. But I think there's another reason, and we can sort of discern this from the words of Jesus in John chapter 5. You don't need to turn there, but there in John 5, verse 33, Jesus says this to a crowd of Jews. You sent to John... And he has borne witness to the truth. Verse 35. He was a a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Apparently, there was a popular movement that was beginning to surround John, almost a, a, a personality cult. There were people that came to him as a bright and shining light. And Jesus says, you were willing to to bask in his light, bask in his glow for a time. There was a very positive response to the ministry of John, a response that's not duplicated uh, in the ministry of Jesus. Again and again, we see that positive attention is coming toward John the Baptist. And whenever positive attention comes to him, he wants to deflect it or direct it from himself and toward Christ. If John was a burning and shining lamp, Christ was the great light of the world. And John wanted to direct people to that light. John will not allow anyone to look to him or at him. He wants all eyes on Christ. And this is the essence of his ministry. We said a couple weeks ago, his was a look to Christ ministry, a look at him ministry. And he says, don't look at at man, don't look at me for what you can only get in Jesus Christ. He is the one to come. I am not the Christ. I am not the light. I am not the bridegroom. I bear witness to him. I stand beside him and prepare the way for him. John, first of all, is not the Christ. Secondly, he says, he's not Elijah. Verse 21, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Now again, that may appear like an odd question, a mysterious question to us. If you were really familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, you would have known that in a few places, uh, the Old Testament writers foretell of a coming uh, Elijah-like figure. Elijah was this great Old Testament prophet, and there was going to come a a second Elijah at the end times when, when the Messiah was going to come, this great prophet was going to come anticipating the day of the Lord. One text where this is very clearly stated is in Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So Jews of those day, days are anticipating, is Elijah here? Are you Elijah? You, you're prophesying here in the wilderness. Are you that second Elijah who is to come? And John says, no, I'm, I'm not that Elijah. Now, if you're familiar with the other gospel accounts, you might think we've landed on a discrepancy here. Because in each of the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
Jesus does identify John the Baptist with that promised Elijah figure. So Matthew eleven fourteen, for example, Jesus says this, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Luke 1, verse 17, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So you might be asking the question, is, is the gospel of John at odds with the other gospel accounts? Well, the answer is simply no. Because the other gospel reports say that Jesus identified John the Baptist with the promised Elijah to come, but they never suggest that John the Baptist himself made the connection. John the Baptist didn't understand himself as that second Elijah. Maybe he should have, but it wasn't revealed to him. Jesus later on will say he, he was that Elijah. He was that prophet to come, but nowhere do the other gospel accounts say that John himself understood that, which means Jesus himself assigned a greater significance to the ministry of John the Baptist than John the Baptist himself did, which is classic John, right? He must increase, I must decrease. John doesn't have a particularly high view of himself, and he doesn't see himself as that Elijah who is to come, and so he answers, no, I'm not Elijah to come. But then a third denial from John the Baptist. They ask him, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. What do the Jews have in mind when they ask him that question? Are you the, the prophet? Again, there's an obscure text in the Old Testament that talks about this coming prophet of the Lord, this prophet greater than Moses that even Moses himself spoke of. It's found in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18. I'll just read a couple verses Moses says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Here hundreds and hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus Christ, there's this prophecy that there's coming a prophet greater than Moses. And Moses says, you're gonna listen to him. God's own words are going to be in his mouth. He will speak. He will reveal God to you. And so the Jews of, of John's day, they're expecting that this great prophet is going to come, and they see John the Baptist, and he's prophesying in the wilderness, and they ask, are, are you the prophet Moses wrote of that he told us was going to come? And John straightforwardly answers that he is not the prophet. We're going to learn later on in chapter 1 that Jesus, of course, is that prophet. But he says, I'm not the prophet to come. So who was John? If he's not the Christ, if he's not Elijah, if he's not the prophet, who was John the Baptist? And that's the second point, who John actually was. If you look with me at verse 22, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John says this, verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John is referring to Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. And he understands himself and his ministry to be a fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah 40. I think it would be helpful to read those words in their wider context, the first five verses of Isaiah 40. Here's this prophecy that's given. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And here's the verse. A voice cries in the wilderness, 
Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John says, I'm the voice. I'm a herald. I'm preparing the way for the Lord. If you're reading from, say, the New King James, Lord is going to be in all caps, L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's a reference to the covenant name for God. And John says he's come to prepare the way for Yahweh, for Jehovah, for God himself. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Here, unequivocally, again, Jesus is understood to be God himself. And should we be surprised? He said in verse 1, the word was God. And John says, I'm preparing the way for God. I am making straight a path for the Lord. He is coming. And my role is to be a herald, to be a voice, to prepare the way for him. But this group of priests and Levites, they're persistent. We're told that they're sent from the Pharisees, and they go on to ask him, verse 25, then why are you baptizing? If you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. In other words, we don't have a category for someone baptizing who isn't authorized to do so. Now, it'd be helpful to know as a matter of history, baptism did take place in those days. Normally, it was self-initiated or self-administered. If you joined a new movement, you were baptized into that movement. We still use that sort of language in our day. It, it, it symbolized adherence to a particular group or sect or viewpoint. But in those days, almost always baptism was self-administered. But here John is baptizing other people into this new movement. And the Jews assume he must have some sort of authority. But if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet, on whose authority do you baptize? You must be someone really important if you think you can carry on this baptism. And John says, verse 26, he answers them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John, in essence, says, yes, I do baptize, that's right. But I baptize under the authority of another, and as for him, I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes. Which in effect means I'm below even the status of a slave or a servant compared to him. We used to, to do this in my home growing up when I was just a little, little boy. Uh, three boys were born first when it was just the three of us. I have six siblings total, but uh, dad would come home from work. He used to work in a plant. He'd have his uniform on and all of that. And one of the boys was responsible to bring him his favorite drink, whether it was water or iced tea. Another one of the boys had to give him the remote. And then another boy would pull his shoes off, would untie his shoes and then you know, pull them off. And the joke was that we were like his, his hired servants or something like that, okay? This wasn't a very progressive household, okay? A little more old school. But John, the, the image still holds true. It's a, something a servant would do is to, to bend down on the floor and wipe off the dust from the person's feet and untie the sandals and take them off. That's something a servant does. John says, I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to do that. I'm not even worthy to bend over and take his shoes off. I'm below that of even a servant. Verse 29, excuse me. Yes, then moving on, verse 29, uh, John uh, the, the scene changes and he sees Jesus coming. 
This is the first picture we get of Jesus in person. We've been told about him in the first 28 verses or so, uh, certainly a great degree of material in the prologue, but now he enters the scene in verse 29. Here he comes, the great actor of John's gospel, the great figure that he's going to point us to, and this is the announcement that's made by John the Baptist, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me, comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He was in the beginning with God. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Again, we see John's role of witnessing to Jesus and announcing his coming. He wants Jesus to be revealed to Israel. Then verse 32, reading on. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize, that's God who sent John to baptize, with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And with those words, John adds his voice to the community of witnesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And we're told, apparently in some way, John actually saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus and remain on him, indicating God's endorsement of Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. And Jesus, as the one who bore the seal of the Spirit, is said to baptize with the Holy Spirit. John says, I'm just out here baptizing with water. There's coming this one, the seal of the Spirit is upon him, and he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Again, he's talking about new birth here. He's talking about regeneration. He's talking about what's symbolized in water baptism today. You see a baptismal service here, what's being symbolized is Jesus who baptizes people with the Holy Spirit, spiritually. Baptizing with water is physical baptism. It symbolizes that inward change, that renewal, that regeneration, that new birth. And Jesus comes now baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Well, so much for who John is not and who John is. Now in the time that remains, I simply want to look at the announcement that John makes concerning Jesus in verse 29. This is John's unique contribution to the various titles and ascriptions given to Jesus. And this is also the way John the Apostle, the one writing this gospel account, chooses to introduce Jesus to us. When he finally comes on the scene, what's the announcement? It's found in verse 20. John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In our time remaining, I just want to ask this question. What does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? What is meant by that statement? And my friends, I return to the question I asked at the introduction of the message. What is the greatest challenge facing humanity? It's that God is holy and we are not. But understanding the implications of this statement, who Jesus is as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, everything hinges on us understanding this verse. And so there's three truths that I want us to see in these words. Three truths in the words, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The first is this. It means that Jesus was offered up as a substitutionary sacrifice. 
It means that Jesus was offered up as a substitutionary sacrifice. I'm getting that with those words, Lamb of God. Lambs were consistently used as objects of substitution and sacrifice in the Old Testament. So you might think of the Passover lamb of Exodus 12. You remember that story? God is going to come. He's going to judge the Egyptians. But there will be a provision for Israel. Each house is to slaughter a lamb. They're to take the blood and they're to put it over the door of their house. And when the angel of the Lord sees that blood, that, that substitutionary sacrifice, he'll pass by their house and won't come in and deal judgment to those families. There was also in the Old Testament the lamb of the daily sacrifices offered morning and evening in the temple. Sometimes a lamb was offered as a guilt offering or a sin offering. If you committed sin, uh, you would appear in the temple and a lamb would be sacrificed for you and that lamb would be like a substitute, be an atonement for you for the sins that you committed. There's also Isaiah 53, which refers to the servant of the Lord, the, the messianic figure that's going to come, and he's referred to as a lamb led to the slaughter. Well, in every case that lambs are presented in these contexts, you have this issue of substitution, that God is willing to look on this lamb as in some way representing a substitute for sinners. So kids, you might think of it this way. We don't have a lot of sheep or lambs in America, and that's very sad. We have a lot of songs and poetry about them. But imagine that I brought a lamb out here on stage, and lambs, of course, are, are white and spotless and all of that. And, and, and the way this would work, you could imagine, let's say I had some spray paint, and I spray painted on the lamb my name, Alex. And then the lamb went off. Uh, I know that you would know, obviously, that lamb is now not me, Alex, right? But God, what he's doing in the Old Testament is providing a lamb as a substitute for the individual. So if I were a Jew in those days, God was willing to look on that lamb as if it were me, which is really, really great news because I have lots of sins. Remember, God is holy and we are not and sin must be punished. But, but this provision was that God was going to provide a lamb for people who could be slaughtered and punished in the place as a substitute for the sinner. So, so there was this great transfer that would take place. God was willing to look on that lamb as if it had sinned, as if uh, it embodied all the sins that I had committed. It was a substitute for sinners. Well, now that term is being applied to Jesus Christ. He's seen to be a substitute for us. He's offered up as a lamb. And he will stand in our place, much like the lambs of the old covenant. But the lamb was not only a substitute, it was also a sacrifice. This means that the lamb was to be killed. And its blood was to be shed as a way of making atonement for sin. In other words, the penalty due to sin was to be exacted on the lamb. Well, again, in our text, Jesus is said to be the lamb of God. He is the great substitute who will stand in for sinners and he will be a sacrifice. If there is any violence or punishment to be exacted as payment for sin, it will be exacted upon him. He stands in our place. He bears our sins and he will be a sacrifice for sinners. The wrath of God will be poured out on Jesus who is the Lamb of God. This is what the gospel teaches that Jesus is a substitute and a sacrifice for sinners. He stands in for us. 
and he suffers the penalty for sin. My friend, I wonder if you've ever been in some sort of desperate situation uh, and, and you're facing maybe terrible consequences, consequences maybe that you know you deserve, you've done wrong, you've sinned, you've committed some sort of offense, and, and you know consequences are coming for you, and you just wish that someone could stand in for you and take the punches. Well, listen, situations don't get more desperate than the situation we find ourselves in as sinners before a holy God. We've sinned against him, we know it, again and again and again and again. And he is holy, and he will punish sin. What hope can we have? But then you hear John's words. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Someone's going to stand in for us. Someone will take the punishment for us. There is a substitute that's provided in the gospel. There is a sacrifice that is offered for sinners before a holy God. Friends, with these words from John the Baptist, we are very near to the heart of the gospel, that Jesus offers himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. And this is highlighted again and again and again throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 5.2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Hebrews 9 verse 26, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 1 Peter 3.8, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's you and me. The righteous, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, suffered for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. And it's interesting, this image of Jesus as the lamb, as the great substitutionary sacrifice for sins, is what John sees in his great apocalyptic vision in Revelation Revelation 5, verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Jesus is pictured as the lamb, not only in his humiliation, as he offers himself a substitute and a sacrifice, but in his glorification. He's glorified as this, this, this great and blessed one who has stood in for sinners and offered up himself to take away our sin. So first of all, what does it mean that Jesus was said to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? It means that Jesus was offered up as a substitutionary sacrifice. All right, here's the second thing I want us to see in those words. What does it mean? It means that Jesus provided satisfaction for sin. Jesus provided satisfaction for sin. Verse 29 says he's the Lamb of God who takes away or bears away or removes the sin of the world. In some sense, Jesus took on himself our sins. Our sins were placed on him and thereby they were dealt with. Our sins are now attached to the lamb. There's this great transaction that takes place. God is willing to see in that lamb, he's willing to see that lamb as embodying my sin. So any punishment to be exacted on that lamb is equivalent to punishment against my sin. He is a substitute, a sacrifice, and he bears the punishment our sins deserve. This is precisely what Isaiah 53 says, famous text in the Old Testament that foretells of the coming of Christ. There in Isaiah 53, verse 4, we read, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If our iniquity is laid on him, and then the lamb is led to the slaughter, our sins are taken away. They're borne off. They're removed. And that's precisely what Jesus does for us. We sang about it a moment ago. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. I bear it no more because that burden has been laid on him, the Lamb of God. And since it's been laid on him and he's led away to the slaughter and he is killed, my sin's gone. I don't carry that burden anymore because it's been removed. It's been placed on Jesus. And he makes satisfaction for sin. Which means, my friends, all of my sin, all of your sin, all of our shame, all of our failures, all of our transgressions, all of the things about ourselves that make us ashamed, they're all laid on Jesus. And he bears them off. He takes them away. This is why the gospel is such good news. My sins are taken away by Jesus. And what's the effect? Psalm 103, verse 12, so far as the east is from the west. It's pretty far. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Micah 7, verse 18 through 19, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? That phrase there, who's a God like you, passing over transgression? That's not like God says, okay, you messed up. I'll just pass over that. You remember the Passover? How was it that God could pass over the transgressions? There had to be a sacrifice. That sacrifice is Jesus. The reason God can pass over our transgressions, my friend, is because Jesus paid the price for sins. Micah 7, verse 18, who's a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. How will he do that? He'll tread his son underfoot. When you read that, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. That means he will tread his own dear son underfoot. Our sin will be punished, but it will be punished in the Lamb of God. It will be punished in Jesus who is a sacrifice for sins. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Jeremiah 31 verse 34, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. My friend, you might fix your mind on that thing in your past, that thing in your life that makes you so ashamed. And then you recognize that if you have Jesus as your savior, it's gone. As far as the east is from the west. He doesn't rewrite history, but he sends his son to suffer as a sacrifice for sin. And what's the effect? My sin's gone. I bear it no more. It's as far as the east is from the west. It's been thrown into the depths of the sea. All my sin, all my shame, all my failures, they're laid on Jesus. And in him they're gone. And God says, I will forgive their iniquities. I will remember their sin no more. 
Now certainly, we sometimes suffer short-term consequences for our sin. Sometimes that's necessary. But we will never suffer eternal consequences for our sins because they've been exacted upon Jesus. And we are made right with God through him. So what does it mean, John's words, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. First of all, it means that Jesus was offered as a substitutionary sacrifice. Secondly, it means that Jesus made a satisfaction for sin. And thirdly and finally, it means that this sacrifice for sin is available to the whole world. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now obviously John is not arguing that Jesus takes away the sins of every person in the world. He's not a universalist. I think what he's saying is that this salvation that will come through Jesus, this sacrifice is available not just to Jews like it was in the Old Covenant, but to every nation of the world. You see, until John uttered these words, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, there was no Lamb that could, excuse me, that could be offered as a sacrifice for the sins of anyone but the Jews. There was no provision for the world. But now in Christ, there is this provision for the whole world so that anyone who believes, as John 3.16 says, will not perish but have everlasting life. The idea is not that atonement is given to everyone without exception, but everyone without distinction. He offers a sacrifice to anyone who will believe upon him. The lambs of the old covenant were offered up as a provision only for Jews, but this lamb of God is offered up as a provision for anyone in the world who believes. He's a savior to the world. He's the lamb of God for the world. And if there will be a sacrifice made for sins, it can only come through Jesus. And that sacrifice is offered to anyone who would believe upon him. So friends, we can go to Buddhists in Cambodia and tell them that their sins can be removed through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We can go to Muslims in Algeria and tell them that God will remove their sins as far as the east is from the west if they'll believe in his own dear son who shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. We can go to Hindus in Bangladesh and proclaim to them that God has provided a sacrifice for sins in the person of Jesus Christ and that this sacrifice can be theirs if they believe on him. We can address atheists in the Czech Republic and we can tell them that there is a God and that this God has provided a sacrifice for sin through Christ and he will bear away their sins if they believe in him. In the person of Christ, there is a sacrifice for sin offered to the whole world. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, hopefully you remember the way John the Apostle uses that word world in his gospel. When he uses the word world, he means the created order in active rebellion against God. The world is that realm of sin and darkness and wickedness in rebellion against its maker. You might remember God's indictment against humanity in Genesis 6, 5. It says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Nothing has changed since then. This world is still that realm of sin and darkness, the created order and act of rebellion against God. The difference is that there is a provision for sin offered to the world. The sins of the world are great. 
You might think of the greatest atrocities ever carried out in the world. Or you might think of the hidden sins in your own heart. In either case, those sins can be laid on Jesus. He is the suffering lamb offered up as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. And he is available to any who will believe upon him. God has made a provision. And our sins, however great or small, can be laid on Jesus who is said to be the lamb of God. What will he do with them? He'll bear them away. He'll take our sins. He'll take our shame. He'll take all our failures. And he'll bear them away. So I return to the issue I presented at the beginning of this message. The greatest problem facing humanity is that God is holy and we are not. God demands obedience and all we have to offer is our sin. And so I ask each and every one here again, my friend, what are you going to do about the problem? What is your plan? When you stand at the crossroads of those two truths, that God is holy and I am not, there is a provision. John announces this provision here. Your sins can be dealt with such that you can appear before a holy God and rather than being judged, you can be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. There is a provision in Jesus Christ such that sinners can be reconciled to a holy God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I offer him to you, my friends. I join with the Apostle John and with John the Baptist and hold before you that great sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who can take away your sin. And my friend, I urge you, don't reject such a provision. He's offered freely to you. You can appear before God in perfect righteousness today through what Jesus has done. All your sins can be dealt a death blow in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. He calls you only to believe upon him and embrace him by faith and be his disciple. You can have this provision today. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to close by reading just a few verses from Revelation 5. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the scrolls and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for our God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever.
Amen. Let's pray.